Bobby, tough news, man. I was so jacked up that we finished 73 episodes of Chatter Up that I went out, drank a little too much, and smashed my vocal cords through the wall of my home. I am unable to record the intro. I'm going to need you to pick up the slack here. <laughs> oh, Jared, we got to talk on your binging, man. It's not good. Your ragers, it's, it's got to stop. Yeah, we got a great episode for you guys. It's going to be great. We talk a little baseball, a little clinching of divisions from several teams, the upcoming playoffs, have a debate about the legitimacy of the wild card process currently in baseball. We'll Illegit. get into the okay, whatever. We talk about the AFC West with the Chiefs, the Chargers, Denver, and Oakland. Who's coming out of the NFC West? Do we take Carolina and New Orleans seriously? Justin Tucker's miraculous 66 yarder. A hell of a lot more. And of course, we are joined this week by New York Times best-selling author Christopher Clary to talk to him about his book, The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. It's fantastic. Jared, you doing okay over there, bud? I'm going to tough it out, Bobby. In the spirit of the greatness, the great career, the durability, the longevity of Roger Federer, it would not be right for me to let one night of partying with Devin Williams ruin this podcast. Then let's do this together, hopefully together, and let's chatter up. Jared, we're officially in the throes of the NFL season, coming up on week four. And that usually means that baseball playoffs are here. And I mean, literally at the time of this recording, we got four games left. Pre-baseball postseason this is probably the hottest time, like this week for sports, even though we've said that before. It just, it's, it's on fire right now. And it's so exciting. Yeah, it's very fun. Baseball's got a lot going down to the wire. Let's talk a little bit division winners and the wild card system, Bobby. We'll start with the division winners. So as of the time of this recording, these things are pretty much sealed up. You've got in the National League, Atlanta, probably going to win the East. Milwaukee, the Central. San Francisco, probably going to win the West. Tampa Bay has clinched the American League East. Chicago clinched the American League Central. And Houston probably going to win the American League West. So let's take out the top seeds as of now in each league, Bobby. So that's San Francisco in the National League and Tampa Bay in the American League. Exclude the wild cards for now. Who do you like in the National League of the division winners? And who do you like in the American League of the division winners, like I said, outside of San Francisco and Tampa Bay? Honestly, keep San Francisco and Tampa Bay in there. Keep them in there. Okay. I still don't think that I choose them. I believe that pitching wins championships and Milwaukee has got two of the best. Yep. I mean, in a seven game series, you got Burns and Woodruff both going probably twice. You can pull out one game in any of the other ones. Good shot. You win that series. You know, it's obviously Devin Williams punching a wall in celebration of the division and breaking his hand doesn't bode well for the bullpen. It hurt but like literally, literally, you know, but I, I, I have to believe in Milwaukee and what they've been able to accomplish. And what I really, I, I certainly didn't see them winning 95 games. I don't know about you, but they have exceeded expectations, have a hell of a pitching staff and pitching wins championships. I'm, I'm taking Milwaukee. And in the American league, I know they're the third record out of the division winners, but I love Chicago. I think they're awesome. I think they can hit. I mean, they can mash. Like, that's just a great team. Also, like Jose Abreu. I don't know. For me, it feels like Abreu's been around for a long time. I don't know if it feels the same for you, but, like, he's still mashing big time. So that's super cool. And they can pitch, too. I just – I think – they're the team that could get the hottest instantly. Tampa Bay is great, but just something about them every year, like it just, it doesn't work out, which is really disappointing because I love Tampa Bay and they're able to do nothing. And then Houston, you know, I just, I hope Houston rots in hell. I have no, I have no remorse for them. I don't, I'm upset that they won the division, but like, whatever. We do have to give them some credit though. We were talking about this earlier. Like they don't have Justin Verlander out for the whole season. Obviously, Garrett Cole's not there anymore. George Springer's not there anymore. I don't want to give them credit for dealing with like the, you know, the circumstances of, of obviously, you know, the, the trash cans and suspensions and all that. But at the end of the day, they're going to win, you know, close to 95 games again and be 
not, I wouldn't say a favorite, but have a legitimate chance to win the World Series. Absolutely. I don't know that we would have predicted that, that at, the, at the beginning of the year. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you know, Carlos Correa is playing in a contract here and he's yep. living up to it. And he's a guy who, for the number one overall pick in a draft, he's living up to it. He's not a bust. Yep. And you know, I've, I've, I've said this before if you're not a bust at the number one overall pick, you got to be doing something really well. He's not a bust and he's great. And obviously throwing, you know, Bregman and Altuve and, and, and whatever. And they're doing it without Springer, you know, and like, it's just, yeah, I guess hats off to them. I really hope Oakland finds a way, but you know, it's, that's not going to happen. Speaking of busts, Bobby, the San Diego Padres, maybe, I mean, probably, I, you know what they are the most disappointing team in baseball this year. Definitely one of the most disappointing teams going back the last few years. So, if you're the Padres, though, Bobby, you made all these moves last offseason. You've got all these guys signed. What do you do this offseason? Do you kind of run it back with the same roster and say, like, you know, this was just a weird year and that we didn't think the Giants were going to be this good and we're, we, we like our chances next year? Or do you make drastic changes? I'm going to flip the question. Oh. If Blake Snell is 100% healthy and Chris Paddock is 100% healthy, do you think this team makes the playoffs? You know, I, I still lean towards no, honestly. Like, it's just like the division that they're in is so difficult. I don't like they're so far behind by record, the Dodgers and the Giants, that I, I have a hard time saying that those two guys, you're talking about like Blake Snell, you know, when healthy is, I mean, I know he won the signing a few years ago, but he hasn't really been the same guy since then. But, but he's, he's a, you know, a legit number two with number one upside. And Paddock is more of like a, you know, number four with number three upside. I just think the gap between them and the Dodgers and the Giants is, is wider than just those two guys this season. Okay. Then, then, then I don't know what to tell you because like, I don't, I don't know what the weak part is. You're looking at probably the best infield in baseball because they got five of them, right? Hosmer, Cronenworth, Frazier, Machado, and Tatis. I don't know how you do better than that. They can hit, they have the pitching. What do you do? You pray to God that the injuries are the reason that you didn't make the playoffs. You run it back, maybe add a, a bullpen arm in the offseason and hope that it works. Because if it doesn't, this is up there as like one of the greatest failed teams based off expectations that there's ever been. Like they were supposed to, if not win the division, like be right there with them. Like they, it just seems like San Francisco and them just like swapped, I don't know, consciousness. <laughs> like it just, it doesn't make any sense. So you run it back, you hope everyone's healthy and you hope you do it. Cause if not, you got major problems. Yeah. I actually agree with you there. I think I'm not just going to say you write this year off because there are certainly concerning signs, but look, the giants won 104 games. Nobody thought that was going to happen. I still don't know what to make of the giants. I think if you're the Padres, you just say like, okay, this was a weird year. I don't really know what happened. I mean, you'll obviously make small changes here and there, but you're not going to blow this team up after one season. It's like we, we've talked about in the past. It's a young team overall. They have, I mean, Darvish is not young necessarily, but, and Eric Hosmer is not young, but the, the big pieces on this team, the Tatis and Machado and Blake Snell, these are young guys. They're not like on, they shouldn't be at the, at the back end of their career. So if I'm the Padres, I give it another go with this team. And then obviously if you have something like this happen again next year, then we know like, okay, this isn't it. We got to blow this thing up. Jared, let's turn our attention to the wild card. Actually, I'm going to say wild cards in the American league. As of this recording, right? This is Thursday night. I'm going to, I'm going to read you the standings as they stand right now. We got the Yankees holding on to the top wild card spot by a game in front of Boston, who has the second wild card spot. Seattle's half a game behind Boston and Toronto's a game back. So there are four teams within two games of each other with four games to go. The best of them, New York, just got to 90 wins. On the flip side, it looks like probably the Dodgers, who are a 100-win team, are going to win a wild card spot and potentially be eliminated by a red-hot St. Louis Cardinals team who won 17 in a row. What do you make first of the AL wild card? And like, is there a flaw in the system? I think there is, Bobby. I, I really think there is. Now, full disclosure, when they first came up with the idea of the second wild card, 
I didn't like it for like, for this reason, I thought like this kind of scenario makes it crazy. Now I like it, like having seen it in action for the last few years. And you're seeing this in the American league wildcard race where you have four fan bases that are going to be engaged until game, probably until game 162 because they're fighting for two playoff spots as opposed to just one. And now granted one, you know, whoever wins the second wildcard spot or, you know, the winners of those wildcard spots, one of those teams is going to go home after one game, but still, You've created this extra level of excitement for these fan bases who know it's not just one playoff spot they're fighting for. They've got a shot at a second one. But as you mentioned, it, it, it's kind of crazy in the National League. So what I would do here, because the, the Dodgers are going to finish 15 games ahead of the Cardinals, 15 or so in the wild card spot. And you're right. Then it comes down to one game, which seems like really unfair. I would have some sort of contingency where it's like if the first wild card team finishes let's say 10 games ahead of the second wildcard team, there is no second wildcard at that point. Then the first wildcard team just moves on to the division series. Cause I think like, I like the excitement, but if one team was so much better than another team over the course of 162, I don't think it's fair to make the Dodgers play a one game playoff now and be like, Oh, sorry, you lost to the team that was 15 games behind you based on one game. You got to go home now. This is a one-time thing. This doesn't happen. No, you're right that this is the first time it's been this much. But like you saw it a few years ago with the with the NL Central, where the, the Pirates and the Cubs both won like 98 games, played in the wild card, and then had to go home. Now, I'm not putting a number on it in terms of the wins. I would just have it like that contingency in terms of if there's such a disparity between the top two. And I get what you're saying. It doesn't happen every year. That's fine. So if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. You don't have to worry about it. I just think when there's that big of a gap, something should has to be done. Win your division then. Win your division. Be better than the rest of your teams in your division. But they play in the, with the team with the best record in baseball in their division. Listen, the Orioles played in the AL East for 15 years and were the bottom, the, the, the bottom feeders of that division for so long because they're so good. That's just the way that it is. And you have to figure it out. Orioles figured it out in 2012 and in 2014. Now, again. Are you saying that's why they only won 50 games this year? Because of that division? I'm saying that that contributed to it. Now, Put the Orioles in like the NL East with the, you know, whatever is over there. I think they win more games, but that's not the point. Like win your division. That's what, that's the whole point of this is like win your division because it matters because it's important because if you do, you're rewarded and you get a series in the playoffs. Don't win your division. Then your butt's on the line. And that's awesome. I think that's so fun. I, look, I hear you. I don't want to spend more time on this because we have so much more to go, but I just think in, in this kind of situation, there's such a big gap. It seems unfair, but such is life, Bobby. Such is life in Major League Baseball. Such is life in the National Football League. You don't always get what you want, especially if you're at the Kansas City Chiefs. You lost Super Bowl last year, and now we're three weeks into the season. You're one and two, last place in the AFC West, Bobby. Should the Chiefs be concerned at all if you're a fan of the Chiefs by the start? No. Not even a little bit. No, I'm not concerned at all. There's too many people there. There's too many. I mean, are you really going to be concerned about a team with Patrick Mahomes, Tyree Kill, Travis Kelsey, joined by Josh Gordon, who God knows what will he'll give, but even if he gives a little bit, Clyde Edwards-Elair, a completely revamped offensive line? No, I'm not concerned. If there are pieces to be concerned about, it's your defense. There are gaping holes. The secondary looks yikes, not so great. And the run defense looks like Swiss cheese, but like you're then counting on the other team, putting up over 35 points happens, right? Ravens did it, but like the Ravens beat them because Edwards Elair fumbled at the last minute. Okay. They lost to the chargers because of just dumb mistakes. Things like Patrick Mahomes, no looking a 15 yard pass down the field that gets, you know, no, when they get to like two and six or like three and five, sure, we can talk about concern. One and two, I ain't concerned yet. I will say the Chargers beating them, that's a legit team right there. Yeah, on the Chiefs quickly, I, I mean, I would agree with you that I wouldn't be too concerned after three games. The only thing I'll say is it a little bit reminds me of what we saw in Seattle where it was like, okay, Mahomes is the engine that makes this team go. And because of that, as long as he's healthy, they have a chance to win. But now that they've, you know, now that they had to pay Patrick Mahomes, he's not on that rookie salary anymore. They have to make cuts elsewhere. And so it was like, where in years past, Michael Hardman was just a luxury for them. 
now they went into the season as like McCall Hardman's their number two receiver. And guess what? McCall Hardman's not really good. And that's, so now they're like kind of desperate. They're going after Josh Gordon. And it's like Seattle was, was similar when Russell Wilson was, you know, was not making the big bucks when he was on that rookie contract, they were able to spread money around everywhere and have this like incredible roster. Then they pay Russell Wilson. They have to make cuts elsewhere. And now it's become a team where, they're good every single year and they are a, you know, a playoff team pretty much every year, but they've never been able to get back to the Super Bowl just because it's hard to do. So does that, am I saying that the Chiefs are never going back to the Super Bowl? No, because I think Patrick Mahomes is better than Russell Wilson. And I think they still have a, a great coach and they have a good roster around him, but it's certainly, you're seeing the effects of when you pay the quarterback, which he absolutely deserved, you have to make cuts elsewhere. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, I, I hear you. It's, it's just, it's still too early to be concerned about a team like that. There are other teams that I'm a little bit more concerned about, but on the concern level, let's do the opposite. How about optimism level? The Justin Herbert led chargers look ridiculous. We all knew Keenan Allen was great. Who knew that Mike Williams you know, yeah. is, is one of the top receivers in the league, I guess. And that defense is stepping up, you know, they got a, they got a good win against Washington, you know, whatever, but obviously the signature win there being against Kansas city and narrowly lost to Dallas. Is this team a legit contender, not just in the division, but in the conference? I think you have to say right now, yes, because it's almost the opposite of what I just said with the Chiefs and Mahomes, because Justin Herbert, he might not be as good as Patrick Mahomes, but he like mm-hmm. is, is a, appears to be right there. Like if not on that level, it, which, you know, fine, but he's like right there is already one of the best quarterbacks in the conference. And he's still on that rookie deal. So they can fill out that roster around him with a lot of talent and make it so that like they're pretty they can be stacked in in every area and so doesn't necessarily mean they're going to Super Bowl this year but I think for the next few years this is going to be a team that you have to include in the in the Super Bowl conversation but they're two and one Bobby they're not even in first place in their division because both the Broncos and the Raiders are three and oh we went back and forth in our AFC West preview over which of those teams was the bigger threat to the Chiefs we're three weeks in they're both three and oh how do you see it now I think Oakland is a good team and I think that it's been a great start, but I don't buy them even making the playoffs. Like I don't buy Josh Jacobs coming out of the backfield. I don't buy anyone else as a receiver other than Darren Waller. I mean, Hunter Renfro's nice. Not a Derek Carr fan. He's again, I, I hope I'm wrong. Right. I like Derek Carr. Good guy. And like has put up numbers like this before for short periods of time. Let's see what he does through the first eight, nine games of the season. Denver, on the other hand, Denver's got a defense. That thing is locked down and Teddy Bridgewater is doing exactly what they want him to do, which is like do enough to win. Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy, who's not even out right now, right? He's not even there. Like they're, they're balling right now. I'm really impressed by them. I think Denver uh, here, okay, I think the division favorite right now is still Kansas City, followed by the Chargers, which is ironic because of the third and fourth team. I think Denver's right there with them, and I honestly think Oakland is the fourth best team in that division. Let's switch to the other conference, but same part of the country, Bobby, the NFC West. This week, the Rams absolutely destroyed the Bucks, who, you know, coming into this week, I think we all thought of as probably the best team in the league all around. The aforementioned Seattle Seahawks are in last place, one and two behind Arizona, who's also three and zero, behind San Francisco, who's my pick to win the division, who's two and one. We're three weeks in now, Bobby. How many of these teams do you think are going to make the playoffs of the seven that make in the NFC, and who who's going to be on the outside looking in from this division? I think three make it. I think it's going to be three. So they get so they get all the wild card spots. I think they get all the wild card spots. I think it's the Rams. I think it's the 49ers, and I think it's the Seahawks. I not only think that it's the Rams division to lose, I think it's their conference to lose. I, I can't say I'm shocked what I'm seeing from Stafford because, like, we knew he's great. But, like, the connection and, and he has with Cooper Cup is ridiculous right now. If Deshaun Jackson can still play and shriek down the field like that, it just it stretches the field in a way we, we, we really haven't seen from him in a while. And, obviously, the defense is locked down, Aaron, led by Aaron Donald. They look absolutely incredible. I am – extremely impressed by them i see i see at least two probably three playoff teams but if we're talking about playoff teams jerry let's head to the nfc south who are you taking more seriously here 
The Jameis Winston led lobbing into the end zone to Callaway yeah. touchdown New Orleans Saints or your former boy Sam Darnold and the Carolina Panthers. Who's more seriously of a playoff contender here? It hurts for me to say, but I think it's Carolina. I'm still not totally bought in on Sam Darnold. I, I don't regret saying that the Jets should trade him and, and draft a quarterback, which, you know, right now, uh, obviously it's worked out in Carolina's favor, but there's a long way to go with that. But yeah, you just mentioned the Jameis play. We were watching together last week and we we're the ball comes out of his hands and we're like, what the hell? It's That's a definite pick and it turns into a touchdown. I'm just, I'm not sold on Jameis. And I, I, you know, they beat New England last week in new England, which is impressive, but still it's, it's not the new England of old. They destroyed the Packers, which like I get, I mean, that's also an impressive win, but I don't know. I kind of write that one off. I think it's Carolina. They've looked, I mean, look, they've looked pretty damn good in all the games they've played. Now, sure. You could say there there's caveats in all of them, right? They beat the jets week one, the jets stink. They beat the saints week two, but the saints were missing like eight coaches due to COVID that's going to impact them. You know, you could, you can minimize that, but it certainly had some impact. And then they beat Houston week three without even Tyrod Taylor starting with him. And Davis Mills, a quarterback, not particularly impressive, but I don't know. As long as they get Christian McCaffrey back healthy as of today, I think Carolina is the bigger threat. You know, also the threat Bobby from anywhere on the field, Justin Tucker, the man yeah. is about as good as it gets kicks a 66 yard field goal to beat the Detroit Lions in Detroit, a game that the Ravens had absolutely no business winning. Did you come away from that game more impressed by the Ravens fight, Bobby, or thinking, damn, they got lucky? Lucky. Twice. Twice. Right? And, like, in the game, twice. In their season, twice. Yeah. It's just, it's it's crazy. They should be 0-3, right? Yes, they should be. First in week two against Kansas City. If they don't, if, if Kansas City doesn't fumble the ball in that last drive, like there's a 1000% chance they win the game. Yeah. Either Mahomes is throwing a touchdown or more logically, Butker's kicking a field goal and they win it. Week three, Detroit, right? You need a 66 yard field goal to beat them and a, a completely missed delay of game penalty. No, this team is absolutely lucky. I do not see them not only not winning the division, I don't think they're making the playoffs. They're going to finish third in that division below. Cleveland, obviously, and Cincinnati. It, it is. I, I'm not impressed. Lamar Jackson is amazing. Don't get me wrong. But they got to have more. Marquise Brown looked like a joke. I mean, absolute joke. So we'll see if he rebounds. I'm not impressed. Bobby, you spent a lot of time this offseason telling us the Lions were going to go 0-17. They've been, you know, kind of competitive here. They, I mean, they played the Niners down to the wire in week one. Packers kind of destroyed them, but they should have beat the Ravens. They've been feisty. Do you still think Detroit is going 0-17? 0-17. They did not play the 49ers competitively. They got blown out, and then at the last second, the 49ers collapsed. The Ravens game, they played well. They played well. I will, I will give them that. But it's against a team that's, like, decimated by injuries. I, I know. They're going 0-17. You can bank on it. You know what else is decimated, Bobby? Ben Roethlisberger's arm. God. It's, I, I mean, it's sad to watch. I don't take any pleasure in it because this is a guy who will go to the Hall of Fame, has been one of the best quarterbacks, you know, during our lifetime. But the man just seemingly cannot throw the ball down the field anymore. How does that make you feel about the Steelers, Bobby? If, if Big Ben is done, and I think we both think he's cooked, are the Steelers done with him? I'm going to ask you a question. Ben Roethlisberger threw 54 passes this last week. How many of them do you think went in front of the line of scrimmage? <laughs> in front of the line of scrimmage. Or let's rephrase it. How many of them were thrown behind the line of scrimmage? I will say, so you said it was 53. I'm going to say. 54 passes. 54. I'm going to say 15 of them. 15 is the right answer. 15 passes behind the line of scrimmage on a fourth and 10. He threw it behind the line of scrimmage. Like they have to be done. They have to be done with him. He is there out of kindness, which I appreciate, but this game's a business. You got to go or you retire. Like that team is, is headed for last place in a bad way. Najee Harris, I feel bad for him. He thought he was going to a contender. He's going to a nowhere team right now. You know, and with TJ Watt sidelined, it's 
Woo. That's a rough team. But you're, you're a big fan of Big Ben, right? <laughs> no, I, no, actually, no. <laughs> he, look, he's just, it's, it's really crazy to watch. Like some of these plays are, that's what it would look like if me or you was the quarterback of an NFL team. Like we take the snap and we just throw it as soon as we catch it to the closest guy possible because we just don't want to get hit. And like, I mean, that play that you just mentioned, fourth and 10 with the game on the line, this was not like, you know, with 20 seconds before halftime, they're just going for it for the hell of it. I mean, the game was basically over, but that was their last chance to get yep. it back, get back into the game. To throw behind the line of scrimmage on fourth and 10, I, I, I mean, I talked about a rule change in baseball earlier with the wild card system. I think there should be a rule change in the NFL. If you throw behind the line on fourth and 10, and you don't get it, you have to retire immediately because <laughs> it's one of the worst plays I've ever seen in my life. And if you if you do it, you damn sure better get that first down. Otherwise, you have to retire. It's an absolute joke. The guy looks horrible. It's just, yikes. End of an era, man. All right, Jared, as promised, we welcome in a very special guest. We now welcome in the multilingual, multi-talented Christopher Clary. How you doing? I am doing great. Thanks so much. Amazing. Great. Thanks so much for being here. Chris is the New York Times tennis correspondent and now a New York Times bestselling author of his recently released book, The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. And now he joins us to discuss the book and the incredible life of Roger Federer. Thanks so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Hey, I appreciate your guys' interest. It's great to be with you. So let's just dive right in. Why did you decide on the title of the book, calling it The Master, about Roger Federer? All right, I'm going to give you full disclosure here. Basically, the book was, we had the thing all set up and ready to go. And um, my main publisher in New York, great guy named Sean Desmond with 12, liked the idea of The Master. And I did too. I thought it was a lot of tennis connotations and I don't think Roger or anybody is the goat. Um, I felt like it was a, it showed how Roger has mastered himself and, and I think found self mastery in a lot of things that he's done in the course of his career. And I thought it, I thought it worked really well. And then the subtitle was a bit of a debate and the Brits ended up going with the brilliant career of Roger Federer, <laughs> which to me sounded a little too sanguine for my taste as a journalist. Um, and so I was really hoping that us could come up with a, a little bit more balanced and to me, my mind indicative subtitle. And I just feel like what defines Roger at this point in his career? It's the longevity, the excellence as well, obviously, with the longevity. And then I just think the pure beauty of his game has just worn very well over the years. And so to me, that seemed like a nice way to sum him up um, without getting into anything that's too you know, overly sanguine or, or fawning. I, just, I was more comfortable with that subtitle. Chris, I think most people, when they think of you know, Roger Federer's career, they think of this you know, even keeled guys, certainly not in like the, you know, John McEnroe persona of, of very demonstrative on the court and yelling other, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there's certain times, of course, where he shows emotion, but um, generally pretty even keeled. But when you read the book, you learn that that, that wasn't always the case for him. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, that transformation for him, for, for him from, you know, more, you know, more emotional, more demonstrative on the court. And do you think there was, one specific turning point for him uh, that kind of changed that? No, it's a huge, huge uh, factor in his career, that whole, that whole evolution. And he was definitely a tempestuous, self-loathing, angry man a lot of times on the court when he was young. And it lasted quite a while. I mean, his parents really at their wits end. There are a couple of stories in the book. You know, one of them I heard before about you know, the father, Robbie taking him out of the car when he's coming back and just ranting after a junior match and basically burying his head in the snow, which probably isn't very uh, kosher in this era that we're in. <laughs> and, the, and the other one, which I hadn't heard, was they were at the club in Basel, where the old boys club where the family played, Roger played his first sort of serious tennis. And the uh, father just got tired of hearing him get upset and he just left him a coin on the bench and walked off and said, get yourself home, basically because he just was tired of the whole scene. And I know there was a lot of that going on throughout his whole junior career and his early pro career. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways, the, was there a one moment, you know, I don't know about that, but there were several one moments, you want to put it that way. And I know that for sure uh, the situation at the end, when he started to become more of a prominent player, he obviously beaten Sampras in 01 at Wimbledon, 
fourth round had really put his name on the map globally with that win. But then he wasn't really backing it up yet and winning consistently after that, especially at the Grand Slams. Lost first round of Roland Garros in 03. And around the 03 period, after he'd done a lot of work on himself, including a sports psychologist early in his career, talked about him in the book a bit and interviewed him as well, and kind of worked on himself. I think the final thing that took him over the edge was him realizing that he didn't like the way he looked to the public. He's a pretty image conscious person, I think, in a lot of ways, Roger. Takes a lot of uh, pride in what he's projecting. And I think he cares about the game and, and he cares about the history of the game. And he saw footage of himself with Murat Safin playing in Rome. And these guys were just throwing rackets, going crazy and yelling, shouting. And I think when he was in the moment, he didn't quite grasp it. But then he sees it on the big screen being replayed or on Eurosport or somewhere. And that was just not who he wanted to be. And at that point, he had enough tools already with his self-control and his progress. That I think he was able to take the final step and just say, that's it. I'm shutting it down. No more of the shouting, screaming, no more racket throwing. I've been a couple lapses and relapses over the years, but really think about it, 20 years. And you talk to people that are young, like you guys, and you know the uh, impression they have of Roger is Zen Master Federer, super controlled and calm. So go, those of us who've been around a lot longer, we still kind of look at it and marvel at it because what a you know, kind of basically a self-mastery again, self-control. But that's been a big talking point for a lot of people in that's under 30 set who've read the book. Yeah, that was, a, that was I think, the biggest surprise, or at least in the early portion of the book, that was the biggest surprise to me reading it. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. that's absolutely shocking. It's just like not a part that's really talked about as much, mm-hmm. at least these days. You know, you, you mentioned some of his famous matches, some kind of a turning points for him. And he's had so many great rivals over the years, some of the obvious ones that you mentioned in the book, obviously, you know, Nadal, Djokovic, guys like Leighton Hewitt in the earlier side of things. But even guys like Safin, Roddick, Del Potro, all played like pivotal roles in kind of forming Roger's game. And also, I guess you would say even stepping stones to a point to like his success in your estimation, who do you see given the breadth of his career is his number one rival? You know, I just, I really have a hard time separating Djokovic and Nadal at this point. I, I feel like it's sort of a three headed thing, but I, I guess if you had to pick one and I think he'd pick the same, I think it would be Rafa just because I don't think it's has been as good a rivalry, honestly, in some ways as Djokovic has been. Uh, I think that's probably been a more balanced and it's a great contrast in styles. And there's a little bit more edge to that rivalry for sure. I mean, Rafa and Roger have a lot of common ground. I think they, they share a lot. And if they've come to speak the same language or one of them, which they didn't in the early years, they've come to understand they have a lot of things that they share. But I think also they realized that match, those series of matches in the 06 to 09 period were just such definitive matches for tennis fans and sports fans around the world. I mean, I remember covering the 08 final at Wimbledon when Rafa finally reeled Roger in at Wimbledon after a classic five-setter in the final year before. But they played so much in that period, other places too. And um, I think that match just transcended tennis like so few things do. I mean, it's a sport that really has a lot of great content, but not a lot of it gets out beyond the the tennis beltway, if you will. And I feel like uh, that's really was the case with that match. And so I think both of them understand now what their rivalry meant not just for themselves, because it meant a lot, I think, um, but for their game and their sport. And uh, frankly, you know, also there's their commercial, their brands. I mean, it just took them to a different level together. And I think they're going to be trotting out Rafa and Roger, or they'll be trotting themselves out at Wimbledon, you know, for 30 or 40 years to come. So I think in that sense, it is the defining rivalry in Roger's career. But I, I think on a pure tennis level, Novak's right up there too. Yeah, you talk about not being able to separate you know, those three really from each other. And that's, you know, we've talked about it before, Bobby, that's ba- basically the last 10 to 12 years of, of men's tennis is just the conversation is around those three guys. Chris, you've covered all of them, obviously. Do you find that the three of them are, are more similar or, or more different um, in how they approach the, the game and their craft? Well, I would, I would put Rafa and Roger a little bit in the same bucket, I would say. Um, I think just because neither one of them, both of them are, are more kind of consensus builders in general, I would say. And they're, they're, they're big on the image of the game and, and sort of that gentlemanly aspect of it. I'm not saying Novak doesn't care about that, but Novak's had a much more tumultuous encore history than those guys have had. And Nadal, I mean, talk about impeccable. I mean, you could argue that his jumping in the locker room in the uh, hallway and his intimidation is a factor, but in terms of encore comportment, I've never seen the guy even, maybe once flinched at the racket like he might throw it, but I've never, he's never thrown it that I know at any level and um, has been a tremendous competitor as well. So I think he and Roger are sort of in that same sort of zone, but Novak's a different thing. Novak needs needs the emotions, I think, to play his best tennis sometimes. He has more of an edge on the court. I think it's with good reason. The guy has had to build himself up from a much 
more preposterously unlikely level from his background in Serbia to where he became. He had to overcome enormous odds to make it. Any player that gets to that level would. But Rafa and Roger both came from backgrounds and families where there was more support, more, more uh, options available. And I know that just in terms of the way they connect and the way their pasts are and the way their, their family situations have been, I think they have a lot of common ground. And I, I Novak's, I think, a great part in that sense. And I, you know, Novak also has done a lot for the game. And Novak also has his, uh, his moments where he's, a, I think, quite a gentleman on the court. When he loses matches that are tough, I've seen him handled extremely well. Give some great speeches, set the right tone, but he's also cracked a lot more than those guys have cracked. You know, as a fan of tennis, it's very easy to get caught up in the grand slams, right? Like the four big events of the year, it's very easy to, to just get lost in that. But it seemed like you wrote in your book a lot about how important events like the Davis Cup and the Olympics were to Roger Federer. Could you talk a little bit about how important they were in compared to the grand slams to him? And if like, one was more important than the other if they all, all held like equal importance to him. Yeah, I think one of the legacies of this period, to be honest with you, is that they're going to probably look back and see how these guys in some ways sort of um, revalidated the Masters 1000 level of tennis again. I think there was a, a tendency for some of the guys in the previous generation, Sampras and Agassi, to skip some of those tournaments, not give them always their, their just due. And I think that as a group, those top AT players, ATP players have really done a good job of of taking those Masters 1000 events and playing them, they dominated them until very recently to a huge degree. Look at the guys who have the most titles in those things over the years. It's those three guys you'd imagine. And I think also Roger always made a point of saying, and Rafa too, I've talked to him about this, you know, tennis is, is, it shouldn't just be those four events. That's the general public's view of it. A lot of kind of the casual tennis public's view, but we have a global sport and only rate you're going to reach the globe is you're going to have all these other events and other venues that are going to be able to do that particularly the ones in Asia, which is an important market for those guys and an important growth base for the sport. So they all took Shanghai pretty seriously. I know um, as well, the North American events like Indian Wells has grown a lot in stature, probably because of Larry Ellison's money, but probably because of those guys and their commitment to it and the way they talked about it. So they, they definitely sh shone the light on a lot of other events on the tour. And Davis Cup's a really interesting one because when I came into the game, you guys, I was late 1980s. Some of the first tennis that I attended as a fan when I was a kid was Davis Cup in San Diego, USA, France, with like Kant and Yannick Noah playing against our guys. So I felt like uh, I had a real connection to it. And it was a huge thing in this country long ago and still a decently big deal when John McEnroe cared about it back in the 80s. But then it just sort of started to fade. But in Europe, it held on to that stature for a lot longer. And Roger grew up in an environment where Switzerland had reached the final of the Davis Cup in 1992 had played the U.S. in Fort Worth, lost there, but that was a big deal in Switzerland because uh, team tennis is, has a lot of history in, in Europe, especially that part of Europe with France and Spain and Germany and those places. So he, he really cared about it. He was brought into the Swiss team very young, and I think it caused him a certain amount of pain to see that ultimately this, the thing started to slip, and I think he bears some responsibility for that because ultimately once he started to hit a really high level around three, four, or five, he had to make some tough decisions about his scheduling, and Davis Cup ended up being the thing that paid the price. He played it almost every year, if you look, but he'd often play the relegation round. Switzerland would lose the first round of the Davis Cup in the old format, and they go into the relegation round. He'd come back and save the day in September and then return to his individual tournaments. But I know he cared about it a lot, and I know winning it was a big thing for him in 2014. I talk about that in the book. There's a chapter about that. It meant a lot to him because it was all his friends who weren't going to win a big title any other way, except with Roger, and because he really had grown up with it as a kid, watching it and caring about it. So he wanted to check that box. But I think Ultimately, the creation of the Labor Cup tells you a little bit about how he feels about it now, because Labor Cup being a European versus rest of the world competition, it's not Davis Cup, it's one long weekend, as you keep saying, but it does satisfy that team requirement, if you will, to some degree, and the Olympics did it in some ways as well, even though it wasn't a team event, we were really carrying the flag there in a big way. I know that it mattered to him to fulfill that responsibility, and I think the Davis Cup has slipped, and right now it's really in limbo with this new format, but I think it's something that... Uh, there were other events that really mattered to him and the Olympics too. But I think even of all of them, I'd say the one that probably he cared about the most when he was young was Davis Cup. You talk a lot in the book, Chris, that about how Roger is not inclined to, you know, attribute the biggest impact on him to one specific person. He doesn't have one person he looks to, but, but from your perspective, you've covered him for a long time. Obviously you just wrote, you spent a lot of time with him, wrote this book about him. Um, you know, from, from the various coaches that he's had to his family and his trainers, is there one person that you look to 
as have, having had the, the biggest impact on his career on, you know, being other than Roger himself, you know, most responsible for the 20 year career that, that we've watched. That's a great question. I, I'm going to, I'm going to hedge slightly and give you two. I, I, don't, think Roger, I don't think Roger would be a, a pro tennis player if not for Peter Carter, his first coach. I think Roger would have been pulled if he hadn't found that charismatic role model type character. Peter Carter was a, for your listeners who don't know, he was, a, he was an Australian who ended up kind of by happenstance in Basel, Switzerland when Roger was eight, nine years old. And it was a kind of on the fringe tour player who had a lot of connections with Australian tennis, beautiful game. A lot of Roger's elements in his game come from Peter who became his coach and his mentor and really believed in him, but also gave him a window into a, what pro tennis was because nobody in Roger's family had played tennis at a very serious level. His mom was a good club player, but they came to the game late. And, you know, Peter really understood that world and was trying to get into it. And very glamorous to see kind of a mop top Australian. Roger spoke English through his mother, South African, as a kid, so he could communicate with Peter. And he's just a cool guy and had a great game and one-handed backhand and all that. So I think he pulled Roger, who was a great athlete, into tennis at a time when he could easily have become a soccer striker or something else at FC Basel in Switzerland. So I think the reason Roger's a pro tennis player is Peter Carter, which you guys may remember, Peter Carter also later died when Roger was young mm-hmm. in an accident in South Africa, a vehicle accident, chief accident, which had a huge impact on Roger, but that's a different subject. And then the second person, the reason Roger became a great player, in my view, is because of Mirka, his wife. I think Mirka took him uh, all that ambition that she had and all that expertise that she developed trying to be a pro player and succeeding to some degree before injuries ended her career, she saw in Roger all that he had that he could do. And so she brought her expertise, her motivation, her work ethic, and her love to him and gave him the tools and the platform to be able to survive and thrive long-term on the tour. There are several other people, including Pierre Paganini, his fitness trainer, other coaches like Peter Lundgren, who gets, in my view, underestimated now in retrospect, his first kind of pro tour coach, um, obviously Severin Luti and Paul Anico and people like that who coached him. But for me, it's Carter. He wouldn't be a pro player without Carter and he wouldn't have been a great, great pro player without America, I don't think. In the title of your book, you use the word beautiful to describe his game. And I think that's as appropriate of a word as any. He's, he's magical on the court and has been for the better part of 20 years. If you were building a tennis player in a lab, right, from scratch, is there like a specific part of Roger's game that you would want him or her to have the most? Like what is, what's that, what's the special sauce there? What's that thing that he has that others don't? Well, I think it's that suppleness and fluidity. Ultimately that's, that's, that defines him. It's that, you know, Novak, you can, you can say it's elasticity with Djokovic in terms of that sort of flexibility and Gumby like thing. I wouldn't call it beautiful. It's more spectacular. Roger is both elegant, beautiful, spectacular. And I think it's because of just the way he, his game is there's a liquid quality to it. I mean, David Foster Wallace, who wrote that uh, amazing essay about Roger back for the New York Times Magazine back in the 2000s, talked about the liquid experience of Roger Federer. And it's true. I mean, it is almost like he's playing underwater at times. It's the way he flows around out there. And I think that's sort of, that's where the effortlessness that people sense comes in. So I think if you're building a game, the advantage of that is tennis is a game of flow and a game of, of, of movement. And I think that ability to do that without too much pounding and stress on your body and the ability to use what Billy Jean King called in the book, his kinetic chain, which is something where he comes from a position of preparation through the shot production and then the finish, which you see a little bit in guys like Medvedev now who are so loose as they finish around the neck and things like that. So I think those two things have cre- would be something I really would want another player at the uh, junior level to try to possess would be, I think it takes a lot of the stress off your body. And Roger has not lasted to 40 by coincidence, obviously his body's breaking down now to some degree, but he lasted a long, long time without any serious injuries. And I think it's because of that, of the movement and the way he produces his shots. He said himself, if he was doing it again, he might not go with a one-handed backhand. I sure hope he would. I'm a one-handed backhand lover. I have a very bad one myself. And I, <laughs> and I feel like, you know, when that goes, tennis will be a much less interesting sport and an eye-catching sport. But you could argue that if you build in a, t- a tennis player, you you probably would want to build that two-hander in some way and obviously have this a world-class one-handed chip at the very least. But I, I love that shot in him, and it, it really defines him, even though his forehand is his best shot. You alluded to this earlier, Chris, and you know, you've been around the game for a long time. You've covered a lot of the greats. And we would be remiss if we didn't ask you, do you think that Roger Federer is the best of all time? I know there's a lot that, that goes into that conversation, longevity and peak performance, but 
you know, as we sit here and talk today, do you see him as, as number one on your list? I'm kind of glad that you put it that way by using best instead of greatest, because I think that's a much more specific tennis skills kind of word, right? In some ways, you know, I personally, at this point, looking at just what I can see, which is, and comparing more apples to apples. I mean, a lot of tennis history is you're going to be comparing, you know, watermelons to apples, frankly, mm -hmm. because you just can't go back to the pre-open era in the men's game. You can in the women's game a bit more, but the men's game, you just can't go back to pre-68 and, and really have a good sense of how you compare a Rosewall or a Laver to Roger or Novak. It's just very hard to do because they just weren't taking swings at the same targets, you know, different things. Slams just were not available to those guys for as long. And they played a grueling barnstorming pro circuit and, the Grand Slam is all of them didn't have that same prestige that they have now. So I think, I think what we can see, what we can analyze is more from 1990 on when Sampras sort of made the Slams appointment viewing. You got to be their appointment attendance if you want to put it that way. And I think, you know, at one point, Roger clearly had won that argument at one point. But now I think you have to honestly just look at the evidence, especially the ATP number one weeks, look at the number of Masters 1000s that have been won by Novak Djokovic. You have to look at the head-to-head -head records. And this is very compelling now. You know, who has Roger lost to three times at Wimbledon in finals? Djokovic. Who has lost twice at Roland Garros to Novak Djokovic? Rafa Nadal. So, I mean, those are, to beat those guys in their, in their den, in their lion's dens, and do it multiple times in huge matches, that says a lot for Novak. And also, I think he's getting to the point now where he's got great longevity, too. And he's been as close to the Grand Slam as anybody has been since labor. He almost got there. Didn't get it, but neither Rafa nor Rogers even been close. So I, to me, I give the edge to Novak in the best department at this stage in modern tennis for the men's game. But in terms of the greatest, uh, that could be a lot of other components. And I think you'd have a strong argument for Roger in terms of just the impact on the game, impact on fans, what he's done on a lot of levels. And you could argue he's had as big as an impact and a greater impact than almost any tennis player in history. Before we let you go, you know, your book's been out for a bit now, obviously New York Times bestseller. Congratulations. That's incredible. What do you, what do you hope readers take away from this book? Is there, is there one specific thing that you'd like them to take away? Or is it kind of like a, a several ideas? What, what do you, what do you hope they take away? You know, I just got to say, first, I appreciate that question because it is go through your mind as you're writing it and you want to have a newspaper article or a magazine article, you, you need threads, but you need a really good thread when you're writing a book. And I think it's a long book too, as you probably noticed <laughs> when you read it, it's over 400 pages. Um, it's a good thing you had a long career so I can justify that. But I, <laughs> but I, but I feel like uh, for me, I think if you're picking out one phrase, it's just that it was a hell of a lot harder than he, than he made it look. It really was. And I hope that people who just know him, especially from a younger generation and look at him that way, will look at this book and go, man, okay, now I get it. It was never going to be that easy. This looks easier. Use that fluid, but boy, you know, look what he had to go through to get there. And I, I think that's really instructive for all of us and whatever we choose to do. So I, I found that very interesting, even more and more interesting as I kept researching, because I went back when I did the book and I interviewed over 80 people for it, just for the book. And I took the time to do that because I really wanted to get a fresh 2020, 2021 look at him with all that time in the rearview mirror. So I think there's that aspect of it. I wanted people to understand the process and how complicated and how much kind of was in the balance. There were a lot of pivot points for Roger where it could have gone a very different direction. People that he met at the right time, be it Peter Carter, be it, uh, you know, his uh, fitness coach, Pierre Paganini, uh, all those sort of people that came along into his life at the right time. A lot of right choices, people, things that could have gone really sour that did not because of the things he did. But the other thing I was really interested in was just, let's find out as much as we can, the incremental process to greatness to excellence, to mastery. And I wanna know how the heck he learned how to hit a backhand, or how he learned how to hit the forehand that way. Well, how did they get his serve like that? Why did he choose that grip? Why did he decide to create this fitness program the way he did? I, want, I wanted to go back and look at all that in this kind of timeline situation through the places that he that mattered to him. So those are, the, those are the two main things I would say. I hope that came through. Absolutely. The book is incredible. Uh, before, you know, last thing, can you just tell our audience where they can get more of you uh, and where they can find the book so they can take a read for just like we did, which is, it's excellent. Well, anybody following all this, I think they've gotten plenty of me in the last month, <laughs> more than enough. But if you have any more appetite, I use Twitter a lot. That's kind of where I make connection with people. So feel free to come on there and DM me or, or message me. That's a good place to go. Christoph Clary, talk a lot of tennis on there. I take a lot of abuse on there. 
uh, try to keep coming back for more. And then if you want to get the book, which I hope you do, um, I try to make it for tennis nerds and also for people who have a general interest in greatness or sports or process. And people obviously can get it on Amazon, but I, I always encourage people to support independent bookstores. If you don't mind paying a couple dollars more, those places are so important to our communities. I know they've meant a lot to me in my life where I've lived. So I, I urge you to, uh, to go to your local independent bookstore and, and order the book there and maybe wait a couple of days instead of getting instant gratification and get the book and, and then let me know what you think. I'd love to hear. The book is called The Master, The Long Run, A Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. It's by Chris Clary. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Real pleasure talking to you. Bobby, this was a contentious episode. This was a dramatic episode. In some ways, this was a heartbreaking episode. But like the long career of Roger Federer, at the end of the day, it was a beautiful episode. You're not going to want to miss episode 74 of Chatter Up. Thank you for continuing to tune in and support this podcast. Big time thanks to Christopher Clary for joining us to to talk about his book, the master, the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer. If you are a fan of tennis, you should definitely go out and get this book. And if you're just a fan of like reading about greatness and like learning about how these people who are have reached like the tops of their profession have done it, you should absolutely go out and get that book and continue listening to this podcast because we exemplify the same thing. And after you feel so great after finishing this episode and you want to let us know, go hit us up on Instagram or on Twitter at chatter underscore up or hit us up with an email at chatterupodcast at gmail.com. Any and all feedback is greatly appreciated, but if it's bad, I probably won't respond to you. So, you know, easy come, easy go. We'll hold serve, though. If you challenge us, we will hold serve like the great one, Roger Federer. Mm, I see what you did there. And we will see you next week with the next Chatter Up. <laughs>